and welcome to another bonus edition of the Ask podcast, coming to you from half term on a lovely sunny bank holiday evening. Um, we are going to carry on our cross-curricular theme. We're going to try and look um, at the intersection between science and literature. When I say we, it's me, Jenny Summers, again, Deputy Head of English and um, Drama, had to think about that, at John Hamden Grammar School, and of course, my lovely colleague, Mr Mark Till. Hello there. Yeah, well, should we, full confession, we had a go at this, didn't we, in the afternoon? <laughs> Inside, and yeah. there, was, there was a small child and a cat, and then someone over a garden fence using a buzzsaw mm. we began to abandon it. We didn't ask why he was using a buzzsaw. I hope he was a magician practicing or something. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, we probably should have asked. But yeah, this is our, this is take two, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. No, I mean, it was entertaining to listen back to, but I feel for our usual uh, listeners, it might not have been quite what they were looking for. So we have... No, uh... I think Tom, the producer, would have uh, despaired of us if he'd, if he'd heard <laughs> Hopefully there's no extras, uh, you know, I, uh, child is in bed, cats are, you know, duly fed, etc. So hopefully no interruptions, but I can't promise... Let's do it. Let's <laughs> oh, and we will insert a clue, an update on clues and so on up, uh, later on, I believe. Well, there's a dramatic, dramatic announcement to be made. Oh my goodness! It's dramatic for just a bonus episode, but we'll do it anyway. Dun dun dun! But you know, they will. You know, that's that's kept them teased, so they'll keep listening. Good, good, good. That's what we want. And as I say, we're, we're going to look at the intersection between science and literature. And I get the feeling that Sir might be taking it possibly more in a non-fiction direction, whereas I'm looking at kind of science and its role in the novel. But you might, you know, completely confound me by going uh, away from that straight away. But where did you fancy starting, Sir? No, I thought, I thought that. Um, I mean, first of all, I thought that it's a little bit strange that I think a lot of people these days think that science and literature belong in completely separate realms. You know, you have the C.P. Snow uh, idea of the two cultures. And I think that's really, that's something that I regret, that that's where we are. And I think historically that's fairly new. Uh, I think in, in, in the classical world, I think they would have seen arts and sciences as, as really the same kind of thing. Mm. Human beings find out about themselves in the world. I think in the Renaissance, I think da Vinci would have seen a distinction between uh, the arts and the sciences, between mm. the sciences. So I think actually, I was thinking about this, this happens, doesn't it, with romanticism, that you get this, you get this, this distinction where mm. romantics, I think, rather feared science and they feared that science was explaining everything and explaining everything away and, and everything was becoming very mechanised uh, and, and John Keats uses the phrase uh, unweaving the rainbow and he, he thought that science in starting to explain optics and rainbow can be explained because of the perspective mm -hmm. and where you're standing and, and trick of the light and so on, uh, that, that, that science was taking away from the magic of reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, uh, I think that's almost still the, the, the influence, the dichotomy that, that we live under. And I think that's a shame. And uh, we were talking earlier, you're off to see Richard Dawkins very soon, aren't Ooh. you? And, and Richard Dawkins, uh, if you set aside, uh, he's now more associated, I guess, with the, with the science and religion debate, but actually for most of his career, Richard Dawkins was trying to correct that idea of unweaving the rainbow. I think he writes a book called Unweaving the Rainbow, uh, in which he, he tries to argue that, that science, and indeed writing about science, mm. ought to inspire the same kind of wonder and awe that Keats saw in nature. Mm. And Richard Dawkins' science is actually a way to have those feelings of the sublime and of awe. And he thinks that, you know, uh, science should be more of a 
you know, an inspiring theme for artists, mm. and that writers ought to uh, be inspired by what science reveals about the world. And, and I think he's onto something. I think yeah. he's onto something there. And I read a lot of um, Richard Dawkins uh, a few a few years ago. He, he writes some wonderful books, and he's a great example of a scientist who is also, I think, a very fine writer. Mm. Which is not always the same thing. <laughs> no. Scientists, some scientists might have brilliant ideas, but they can't always communicate them. Mm. Bill Bryce, who's a wonderful writer on many subjects, has this great anecdote in his um, A Short History of Nearly Everything, uh, where he writes about the, the father of geology, who is James Hutton, who had this marvellous idea that basically founded the modern science of geology, about the composition of the earth. Uh, but he wrote about it. His prose was so turgid and technical that actually his ideas never took off. And it took another uh, another scientist who was a far better writer, mm. uh, John Playfair, uh, to to write about it in a way that was far more accessible for a popular audience. And so when you think about science and, and, and literature, I think um, to some extent they're at their best when they're working together. Mm. I think scientists need to popularize their ideas through literature and someone like Richard Dawkins thinks a really good example of a, a scientist who does that and of course he's friends with Douglas Adams for a lot of his life until Douglas Adams dies tragically young and in a chapter wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stories and they had a friendship and you can sort of see that that, that Douglas Adams was really inspired by ideas in science and scientific ideas filter their way into his comedy in, in Hitchhiker's Guide and equally I think Richard Dawkins is sort of inspired by uh, the, the lightness of touch that Douglas Adams had and has certain, he writes another book called Climbing Mount Improbable, which is all about trying to explain the evolution of the human eye. And he uses this metaphor mm. that it's about climbing an improbable mountain. You can just tell he gets that kind of thing uh, from, from Douglas Adams. So I think there's a really useful exchange to be had between science and literature. And, and it's a shame that people don't always recognize that and that they... They're like friends who should hang out more, mm. and yet they, they keep apart, which I think is a shame. Do you think it's about, just listening to what you say, is it about a need for a narrative? Is there some kind of inherent human desire for everything to have a kind of underlying sense of story and that just, you know, dry statistics, facts, experiments don't speak to us, don't speak to our hearts? We need a narrative to underpin everything. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, I think that is true. And again, not to harp on about Richard Dawkins, <laughs> you know, he does write another book called *The Ancestor's Tale*, mm. he tries to explain evolution through this idea of, of of stories and almost the human story. Yeah, I think that's one part of it. I think another part of it is making ideas accessible through metaphor. Mm. I think that the, the great science writers, someone like Richard Feynman, for example, in in physics, um, they they often use the same imaginative techniques that a fiction writer would use and metaphors are very powerful I think it's so double-edged mm. uh, that's why I really hope we can get Mr. Dunn or Dr. Bullard on the podcast at some point <laughs> back, back to regular episodes to talk about this because I think it's it's that thing where metaphors can be double-edged they can help you to explain something but fundamentally there's a limit to how useful they are so mm. I remember being taught at school about the, the, the composition of uh, an atom and that electrons were like flies buzzing around in the theme. <laughs> and I remember having that, and what the teacher was trying to convey in that was a sense of scale and how much empty space there mm. is in, in, in an atom, particles within it. But actually, 
the more you learn about physics and particularly as you become older and study at a higher level and that our students who are studying A level, they have to learn that actually that metaphor is not very useful. Mm. On a certain level, it's nothing like flies buzzing around a cathedral because both of those are physical objects that we can understand. Mm. And the whole point of physics at a subatomic level actually becomes strange. Mm. And you start to get that whole particle wave duality mm. and, and things don't behave in a way that's predictable. Um, so, yeah, I think another, there's another tension between the way that you want to try and use language to explain mm. by analogy and that that can only take you so far and to some extent that can end up uh, almost being a sort of lie that then teachers have to say, oh, well, we used to explain it like this, but uh, that was sort of just to help you get to a certain mm. point. Now we have to keep that ladder away and, and do something else. So, yeah, I think narrative and also uh, imaginative description I think mm. are interesting intersections i had that exact experience at chemistry as level of um these were the things we used to try and help you understand gcse you can forget everything you've learned we're now going to explain it in a far more technical way (laughs) bamboozle you all over again so yeah no i absolutely recognize that idea um so that's what it made me think also um vladimir nabokov and his butterflies okay you know i was trying to think of writers who had a sort of scientific background yeah i thought or, or you, Sai, I thought A.S. Byatt, yes. she's very scientific, she has mm-hmm. possession of lots of other novels, and she, she seems to me to be someone who's very, very science literate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Stoppard. Oh, yeah. Tom Stoppard, when you got plays like Arcadia, someone who's incredibly science literate. Mm. And then I thought Vladimir Nabokov and uh, his butterfly. So Vladimir Nabokov, who is a slightly controversial writer because yes. he writes Lolita. Of course. Uh, which if you uh, look it up, we won't, we won't get into that too much on the podcast. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. <laughs> He writes a bunch of uh, you know really beautiful novels, and he is a um, butterfly expert. But he was a lepidopterist, and mm-hmm. there's something about his study, I think, of moths and butterflies, uh, which is a favourite subject of our very own Miss Ben as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he's a proper scientist, and 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 that absolute attention to detail, I think, finds its way into his novels and his imaginative writing too. He has almost a kind of scientific precision. To the way that he describes everything, even mm. in his imaginative fiction, uh, and so the, the, there are there are some writers, and you think, oh, your your scientific approach actually mm. really strengthens your imagination. So that's where I went. But what? Because you you went a different direction. You were thinking of science in fiction. Yeah, right? and and interestingly, that that your the last thing you said just make me. I don't know why it, it, it sent sparks going off in my brain or whatever it is, scientifically speaking. It made me think of Middlemarch, interestingly, because I think Elliot, I mean, she was a polymath. She was good at all sorts of things, incredible writer, incredible intellect, and often way beyond anything I can achieve. But she often used lots of kind of scientific metaphors and ideas in her writing, and she would use the idea of looking at people under a microscope and, and, and even talks about the kind of the art of um, moving people into places and observing how different things cause them to move in different ways. And she even studies the idea, like she looks at the poor old Dr. Lydgate, the kind of the frustrated doctor that has this, like wants to come up with a unifying theory that, that makes the world make sense and his kind of great disappointment when he, you know, marries the wrong woman and never has his great success and so on so i think she's a writer that's really uh has an interesting view of, of the interrelation between science and literature so i definitely recommend her and don't let the length of the book put you off because i know some people uh, look it's it is. Been a while since i've read me george elliott but mm. yeah george 
is George Eliot. She's a master. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute real deal. Yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend her. But yeah, really, um, one of the things that encouraged me the first place to, to pick this is I really wanted to talk about Never Let Me Go, the Katsuo Ishiguro novel, obviously Ishiguro being one of your previous clues. Um, yeah, and previous Nobel Prize winner a couple of years ago as well. I just think, I, I'm going to try very hard not to spoil this, but it really is a book that looks at ethics it looks like uh, the interplay between science and ethics and how that overlaps um with literature and it kind of looks at what does it mean to be human what if you boil it all down both in a scientific sense but in a more of a i don't know not a religious sense but a spiritual sense perhaps what at base makes us human you know if we are from a test tube if we're cloned if we are partly bionic if we're augmented in some way do we lose our humanity if our consciousness is uploaded onto a system of some description do we then cease to be human so what is it that makes us is it consciousness is it the ability to feel is it the ability to feel love and i think he gets all of those things through a really fascinating seemingly to start with quite detached first person narrator that gradually when she starts telling all these little these little vignettes of, of of her life growing up um in a seemingly ordinary boarding house in the british countryside and then the kind of uncanny sense of things are not quite normal at all and the things that are lurking underneath and the and the, the ethical sense of is this right what is happening here again i'm trying really hard not to spoil it but there's and it's a real it's a tearjerk. I mean, that's Ishiguro is the master of making you cry <laughs> in a good yeah, way. Is it on our recommended list? Is it on our 16? I think it is. Yeah, I think it's on 16. I think, yeah, I, yeah. I, think I remember thinking it's the sort of novel that mm. even if you're not, haven't particularly been into mm. uh, fiction or read novels before, I think there are a lot of our students who they would pick that up and it would become their favourite novel. Mm. It's so incredibly powerful. I agree with you. I mean, it is, it's on the A-level syllabus. It's not one that's on our part of the A-level syllabus, but yeah. it is, and it's a brilliant, again, a, a political and social protest novel, my favourite of all the modules. Um, yeah. It really gets at those kind of issues, and he's great at these kind of cross-genre approaches. I've just bought, I haven't started it yet, but Clara and the Sun, his new novel, which is about, very similar in terms of themes, but looking at an artificial intelligence and that's seemingly almost impossible to tell the difference between whether she's real or not and again how should society treat her and you know she, what she be someone who passed the turing test yes exactly yeah so is that do you think that's the is that the role of of writers or one of the roles of literature you think science proposes potential futures or potential breakthroughs or potential dangers and writers create fictional worlds to explore the limits. Mm, yeah. That's one of the functions of literature. Yeah, no, absolutely. I definitely think that. I, I, I mean, that's the power of the imagination. You know, one could say that it's a, it can create a sense of paranoia. I mean, certainly to go back to the AI example, that it means everybody's like, well, it's going to end up being like iRobot and they're all going to take over and it's going to be the end of the world. So you you could argue perhaps that, that stories and, and comics and so on might, you know, it, 
stimulate our imagination too much but i think that is what writers are there for i think that they need to explore the boundaries of what's possible to sort of highlight to us it's alert say you know this could happen if we carry on on that course this is the kind of dystopian future we might create for ourselves so i think yeah and that's obviously one of the most common features of science in the novel is in that kind of various different horrible dystopian futures we could create ourselves if we do x y and z and we carry on exploring this particular path and i particularly like that genre too do you think do you think literature is to 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 blame in some way for people's uh, suspicion of science do you think that the writers always focusing on the the dystopian potential uh, of, of science and technology mm. she there's an argument to say that that that's been overdone and has almost contributed to a feeling of with any breakthrough people's people tend to catastrophize and think about what's the worst that can happen and i wonder if that mm. almost are we in a culture that maybe isn't as scientifically literate and is that because we fear it i wonder oh i don't like the sound of that i mean you could <laughs> <laughs> you could say that covid in a way bears that out because sometimes there there is a, you know you get certain people that do seem to distrust the scientific voice and it, it, sometimes because they're hearing narratives from elsewhere kind of disinformation and misinformation and the narrative is more you know hey i've heard this i'm going to believe that narrative rather than that person spouting his dry scientific approach so i suppose to some extent i'm going to blame journalists more than i'm going to blame novelists I'm going to cling to the novels, but no, I, th I think it's a fair criticism. But I still think that that yeah. that it's important for artists of all types to signpost, to give warning signs that you know they are the the bastions of a free society. So I think they have to guard that freedom and warn against anything that could potentially infringe upon our future. No, well put. I was thinking too, science and literature, and I thought, have there been many? Uh, books that have had a bigger disrupting impact than uh, Darwin's on the origin mm. No, uh, yeah. We, we has to say, I mean, if you th things are really different after that. Mm. I know that I know that uh, Alfred Russell Wallace uh, comes up with ideas uh, at the same time in a different place, uh, and but it's strange. We we teach. Uh, 19th century novels don't we and, and, and often that is a that is a contextual moment mm. that challenges and disrupts uh, and it alters the way that people think about religion and think about human history and think about themselves and so on but people still don't understand it very well mm. you get very very common misconceptions about evolution people thinking that oh well we evolved from chimpanzees or something <laughs> we've not properly understood that and I, no. I wonder if um, if that's um, you know that that's the, the difficulty, isn't it? Really mm. taking something uh, scientific concepts, how you make them through language and mm. through explanation, uh, how you how you popularize them. And yeah. I guess that it's almost a genre, isn't it? Popular science, how you mm. take big ideas and, and get them out there and, 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 and make them palatable for a general readership. Yeah. And there's a real art to that because you know often these ideas are so easy to misunderstand. No, absolutely. And it, that just makes um, Jekyll and Hyde is the perfect example of that because you, you know, coming not a great deal of time after um, on the origin of species, descent of man, etc. Um, and yet, really, its fascination is less with evolution than 
de-evolution with atavism and so on so like the, the the backlash the corresponding fear if we can go that way surely we can go backwards and, and and you know undo ourselves we can create the mr hides of the world so it shows that yeah even a a positive thing of, of discovering something as monumental as that can spark all of these not so positive offshoots and phrenology of course the idea that you know oh yes we can study the shape of your brain and it can tell me you've got this really good oh you've got a great forehead going on there mr till oh i can tell you're a good guy you know smooth smooth faced gentleman yeah absolutely i can trust you straight down the line so yeah no absolutely it, it is difficult that you get these popular conceptions and reactions and rewritings and it's a bit like giant kind of Chinese whispers, if one is allowed to use that phrase anymore. I don't know if there's a, a more politically correct way I can put that. But yeah, so as it's passed on from person to person, it uh, can degrade. And, and I don't know, you know, perhaps we, again, as you say, we need to talk to the scientists. How can we make sure that their ideas are communicated uh, in a way that, that fits with them? Perhaps we need to, you know, I don't know, shadow them and write novels about them. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> a novel about Dr. Bollard. Get more cross uh, cross department uh, interaction. Mm. I think see. there should be there should be poems written about uh, you know string theory and uh, I was really encouraging. So we did the, the book I love most. Mm. That feel honestly that feels like years ago. That was yeah. the autumn. That was the autumn of this year, <laughs> academic year. And uh, I was really encouraged. So many uh, of our students uh, actually recommended science books. So we mm. had uh, Feynman, I mentioned Richard Feynman. Yeah. Richard Feynman's autobiography. Uh, got a number of uh, a number of mentions. A brief history of time. So yes, that was their that was their favourite book. There were as uh, Sun and Sings Matt's books. Mm. Um, so it, it is actually um, encouraging that a lot of students, uh, I think, uh, are um, reading some, uh, mm. some books of, of science and, and and popular science. Yeah, yeah, that goes kind of literary style science as well. I particularly, I mean, that's the thing about Hawking. He wrote absolutely beautifully. He's very you know, although complex ideas and he's breaking them down, he writes in a really beautiful way. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. After we started having this conversation earlier, I, I, I just randomly came up on Twitter. It was talking about Carl Sagan and his recommended books. The It made me a little bit sad, A, because I'd read so few of them, so it made me feel a bit inadequate. But it also, there were lots of philosophical books in there, but there were almost no novels so that did make me a little bit sad i mean there was yeah but i mean there were obviously some fantastic books in there and i, I won't take away from it but i did think no this does not feel like a complete reading list for you know well, on, the, on the poetry of science though i think carl sagan mm. is worth uh man. have you seen cosmos have you seen the, the tv series i've seen little clips of it on youtube yeah so if uh, yeah if people are listening and haven't uh, carl sagan's cosmos mm any flip of it at all there you've got that but we started talking about people who can popularize mm. science and i think there's no one who did that really more poetically than, than carl sagan and he made I think he makes that series in the 80s and and it was right under the uh it was right in the in the midst of the threat of uh nuclear annihilation mm. or war at the time and you know he mentions that and he's almost trying to use uh, science as a vehicle to bring people together you know saying look this is that science is almost the common shared human endeavor and you know we need to put aside our differences we've got a, we've got a universe out there to explore mm. it's wonderfully uh, poetic uh, about it and uh, he writes a book called 
something like science as a candle in the dark. Mm. He saw that that need to understand as being the thing that was that was lighting our way from the sort of darkness of superstition. Mm. So, yeah, I completely forgot about Carl Sagan and Cosmos. <laughs> I'm going to look up some uh, some clips. That was a mm. that was yeah, a genuinely marvelous TV series. Mm. I will go back and have a look. I do like nowadays Neil deGrasse Tyson is very enjoyable. He's um, I mean, he's yeah. maybe not Carl Sagan, but he he is very enjoyable as well. That's interesting, that idea, obviously, enlightenment and, and that idea of discovery and so on. Because, as you say, he was trying to impress upon us the role of science for good. But we do get so many of these amazing books that are like that are reactions against in the enlightenment and reactions against yeah. full-throated technological pro, you know, um, progress. Like I was just thinking of... Things like um, Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South and, and, and often Dickens in various different forms. It's like particularly technology such as, you know, trains and how they're so disruptive and, and, and how the creation of new machines has these detrimental effects upon individual people's lives because it puts them out of jobs. So it's interesting. There's so many of these books that see technology as a as a threat. And obviously that's still something that happens today. And it's a interesting that that unfortunately seems to be one of the big themes the idea of technology and all the ways it can negatively impact our world rather than how it can advance it yeah which which is a little unfair mm. science, isn't it because i guess science is is just understanding technology is what human beings decide to do with that understanding mm. and unfortunately probably we know that if, uh, if if we become able to do something, then we probably will do it uh, for, for, for good or ill. But, yeah, um, yeah, I do. I do feel that. When I started by saying that the, the romantics were reacting against mm. science, I think they were probably more reacting against what was being done with science mm. and, and with what was clearly becoming some of the uh, the, the the effects of the industrial revolution. Um, and that's um, yeah. I, I think I think probably people's. I think fear about change as mm. well. Scientific discovery is fundamentally about here's something new, things are going to change, and, mm. and I think people have a fear of a fear of change. No, I absolutely agree. And sometimes well founded, and, and, and sometimes not well founded. No, there's an awful lot that you know we might say would be nice to change. There's still a great many diseases that mm. cause you know untold amounts of, of suffering and, uh, and, and lives cut short and things like that, you know, it often strikes me that there's an awful lot still to be done in mm. terms of We tend to think that we're very technologically advanced, mm. yet, you know, people still uh, still succumb to, to, to illnesses so that, that, you know, we keep being told the cure's around the corner, but mm. somewhere I think we still need to get behind science because there's, uh, there's a great deal still to do. I wonder if there'll be the great COVID vaccine novel of the future is something somebody's going to write. Are you writing that right now, sir? <laughs> I should be, shouldn't I? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think very possibly. I wonder whether, I, and I do wonder whether the development of that is going to uh, affect, you know, public perceptions of science. Mm. Uh, I've actually been rather in awe of not just um, those working in healthcare, but I think there's genuine public admiration mm. of those who have led on the incredibly fast production of the of the various vaccines. Uh, and I think that um, that kind of generosity of spirit that exists at the moment towards mm. people that have, that have worked on finding a, a solution uh, to this problem. I think feels like the potential to, to change the public mood a little bit. Because as I say, I've always thought people are, uh, are a little suspicious, a little hostile towards towards scientists. Mm. Something a little bit anti-human, there's something a bit cold and clinical and white-coated about the whole thing. And, and it, it has the reaction to the vaccine is, is potentially a chance to show that 
you know, a lot of the people working in those white coats are mm. doing it for, 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 for real human benefit and to mm. alleviate suffering and, you know, what's more human than that? Yeah, it's been, you know, just to go topical, I've been, uh, I saw a video of thousands of people um, lined up because apparently they've opened up in some places um, for vaccine for just over 18s, anyone can go. And it was really encouraging to see that the narrative, I guess, and the, and the scientists have persuaded them, so many people to come forward, except for they're getting their vaccine before me, because I booked mine for next week, which I think is, you know, they'd better leave some for me, otherwise I'm not going to be happy, I'm going to be marching down there. And complain. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm absolutely, you know, encourage anyone 18 and over that's allowed to, to, to go and get it and, and to benefit from that. And that's been a lovely sense of the collective good and the, the what's possible to do um, when we put our minds to it. So to, to I just want to bring things in a more positive spin because I'm aware <laughs> I feel like I've been bringing all of the doom and gloom. I'm trying to think of any... Any... What else was on your doom and gloom list? My doom and gloom list had... The on you. had John Wyndham on your list as well. Yes, you? I did. Gosh, that's well remembered. I was looking at, I was looking at Mr. Summers' notes. I, mean... <laughs> I know, that's not fair. Um, I haven't looked at your notes because you haven't got any. Because you've just got no, a brain full of ideas. I need to write things down to process them. But yeah, no, I'm a huge um, fan. I haven't read some of his um, for a while, but uh, obviously Day of the Triffids is the one that most people uh, know of. But actually my favourite of his that I've read was more um, Midwich Cuckoos, which is a really odd, fascinating little book with um, some mysterious golden-eyed babies that become mysterious golden-eyed children. This kind of idea of um, the the kind of alien like creatures among us and how that would impact upon us and should we see them as a threat to our future civilization should we integrate them and and, and that kind of thing and it's a it's a slightly unsettling book it's fair to say which most of his books are but no it's a really interesting study in uh, rather dystopian but also it's like frighteningly possible he, he he creates such a clear sense of realism whilst bringing in little things you think okay well that doesn't really happen but you think well could it really happen so it's kind of makes it more creepy and a little bit on the uncanny side oh i haven't read that i have to talk about those we haven't mentioned hg wells <gasps> um how is it how is it possible to mention science and literature and we yeah we, we haven't yet mentioned it it's on when my you, list. It's on my notes. I promise. It is. Oh, of course, it's on your list. Because I was thinking, I mean, it's a very cliched story, but there mm. might be there might be a couple of listeners who don't know about it. Of course, the, the famous Orson Welles broadcast mm. the world. So many people, maybe not quite so many, as it's become a bit of an apocryphal mm. story that people listened to it on the radio and thought it was a real alien invasion. <laughs> but certainly, there were some people who were concerned that it was a real incident. Mm. Uh, and H. G. Wells is uh, is an innovator, you know. In the, Time machine really popularizes yeah. uh, the, the, the scientific idea of, uh, of time travel, which you know these days is is an absolute uh, staple, isn't it? Mm. Uh, fiction on, on TV and film and books and things. Uh, but but H.G. Wells was, uh, I guess, that uh, that great example of, of, of somebody who used scientific concepts to write mm. the most wonderful speculative fiction uh, that had a huge impact on the popular imagination. Yeah, it's interesting that um, I think I'm right in saying this was before H.G. Wells, but I think. E.M. Forster wrote Time Stops before it before War on the World. I oh, might be wrong. I think the same. I think they were similar generation. Yeah, but they it's a similar generation. He's just not a writer, you know. 
it's just very, 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 very different to Room of the View and so on and so forth. It's not something I associate him with at all. But no, it's quite talking, fascinating. You're talking about the machine stops. It's a short story. Yeah, short it's a short story. story. I'm just trying to remember the details of it. Now I've brought it up and I'm trying to remember exactly what happens. But, but I, it predicts the internet, doesn't it? This idea that everybody is in their own little isolation, mm. almost in their own little pot, and they all communicate like we're communicating. Yeah. It's through what he calls the machine, which is mm. a fast interface that connects everybody. Mm. Uh, and one day, the machine stops. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, technology, as it were, fails. Mm. Yeah, but he's writing all this. This is in the, this is in the 1910s, yeah. isn't it? Uh, he, he, he writes this incredibly early. And not just the idea of the technology, but the, the isolating and somewhat alienating effect that it would have on people. Mm. The people would actually live in their little isolations and... And, and, and just communicate that way. You know, he basically anticipates, you know, Netflix, mm. and, echo <laughs> chambers, and so on. Yeah, and people just being uh, just being in their own little their own little bubbles, but actually physically very isolated from each other. Mm. Well, but we are bridging the gap, sir. We are talking digitally across the internet in order to further communication and knowledge. We hope. <laughs> yes, we are. I don't know if that's too ambitious. I tell you what, I have to talk about. There's one thing I haven't talked about. I don't know if you've ever read Flowers for Algernon. Have you ever read that? Oh, yeah, well, yes, uh, but not, not for a long time. But yeah, no, interesting. That one, I absolutely just um, love. Again, I don't want to spoil it, so I'm just trying to think how much I can sketch out. But it's, um, it's, it's fascinatingly written because you start reading it and it's almost, you just think, I can't read this. What's going on? Because the way it's written is a kind of diary type format from uh, this man's point of view. And to start with, it's very simplistic. It's very, very difficult to read. And through the process of the book, he undergoes a kind of experiment which kind of supercharges his IQ and just entirely transforms him as a person. So the prose changes completely. Uh, and it's really about, again, you know, does that does that transform you? Do you become a different human being? Are you worth the same? It's about, you know, should should that person who can only just kind of, has got the minimum IQ necessary for even speaking, should they be worth any different amount to the superhuman IQ that then is, you know, trying to use as much of his time as he can to create inventions and come up with solutions to incredible problems and, and, and how society deals with this huge gap you know we have to make a society that encapsulates the people that don't have the iq they still need to have purpose and, and meaning and so on and shouldn't they have as much of a role in society as the the person uh you know with the superhuman iq and it, again a massive tearjerker i seem to pick these they seem to be my favorites <laughs> but it's a really fascinating yeah, book yeah the big emotional uh, emotional punch uh books you're going for mm, absolutely yeah, that's true you know, i have a, a confession to make so a few, when i was uh i was probably just about 20 or something mm. like that. so you know not very long ago he says um i started to read a lot of these these theories about about how humanity would augment itself mm. uh, and in particular how alongside that machines would become you know essentially uh, super intelligent and take over. And what uh, was that? Uh, that futurist uh, was it Ray Kurzweil uh, had these theories about the singularity. Mm. Singularity was when the next huge advance in computer technology would be invented by a computer. Mm. So you would be cut out of it entirely, and, and supercomputers would invent the next upgrade. To the yeah. 
and essentially you get a race of incredibly intelligent yeah. uh, computers and, and humanity would be reduced to a sort of uh, secondary species. Mm. Uh, I became genuinely frightened about oh, this. Oh no! <laughs> and I suddenly started thinking, oh well that's it, that's the, that's the game up for humanity then. And, uh, and I remember watching sort of documentaries about human history with a sort of sense of nostalgia and thinking, oh, this is the, this is the sort of twilight of the, uh, of the human project, mm. uh, heading for this, this technological future. Uh, and I, I still think that might, I think the time scale might be wrong, but I still, yeah, there's still part of me that has mm. a, slight, a slight twinge uh, when you, know, you hear about people starting to augment their, mm. their reality, their biology with, with, with technology and, and, uh, and, and, and how long we're going to, uh, how long we're going to last in our, in our current biological forms. Yeah. I do read a lot of these, uh, read a lot of these with interest, but also with a kind of, uh, a kind of fear, uh, actually, about, uh, about these huge leaps forward. And as you say, you have to ask yourself big questions like, you know, what is value? Mm. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the, 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 the singularity stuff was based on the idea that Oh, everything's about computing power. Mm. Actually, we'll harness huge astronomical objects to build massive supercomputers, and it's all about knowledge and computing power and things becoming more intelligent. And I do remember having a, a, a moment where I suddenly thought, but is intelligence the only thing that matters? Mm. You know, be based on intelligence as the thing, you know? So, well, what if it's actually not about becoming more intelligent? What if it's about becoming more compassionate? Yeah. Or kind or decent or generous? And, and an awful lot of futurology seems to focus on intelligence mm. at, the, at the expense of actually other human qualities. And as soon as I realised that, I started to feel a little bit better. Because <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the eugenics is the perfect example of that, of, of, yeah. of pursuit of intelligence to that nth degree without compassion, that coldness, that terrifying idea yeah. of, oh, we can build the perfect human and, and, and it's the doctor H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was really caught up in, in that eugenics movement. Oh, so no. many writers were, you know, incredibly, mm. uh, you would think, very humane writers. Mm. Uh, but before people saw, I suppose, in the Second World War, the, the logical end to some of that thinking, yeah. uh, there were a great many uh, writers, one of the Bloomsbury set, you know, apparent liberals, uh, left-wing people, the very, very uh, seduced by, by, by eugenics. And, um, yeah, that's a, that's a warning too, I think. You're killing my love of some of my favourite writers and artists. Don't do this well, to me. People, people aren't perfect, are they? Um, people make mistakes and, um, yeah. I, I think the debate on whether we can separate the art from the artist is probably for another day, because that could be a whole wormhole rabbit hole to go down, definitely. That's a, that's a podcast episode right there. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure we can find a good guest for that one. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Any more things you would like to add to that? I think we've had a good wide-ranging discussion. Yeah, no, I think that's. Uh, I, I think they were the they were the things that, that came to mind. I'd be really interested to see what some of our science colleagues mm. uh, have to say. Make of um, our witterings and whether any of them were. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> if, anyone's got this, if anyone's listened all this way, by the way, you've done well. You know, I yeah. think uh, I think if you've got this far, we uh, we salute you. Um, oh. No, all competitions. You do competition. Yay, do it. Somebody won. In the four proper episodes, and um, somebody eventually emailed the right answer, and it was Dylan G. I say almost about to say his surname, but mm. it was Dylan G. In year eleven, <gasps> who's so he will be yeah, he will receive his prize, which I think will be a, 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 a voucher for Blackwells in Oxford. Ooh, very uh, nice. So Blackwells, so you can go to Blackwells, which is a wonderful bookshop. If you haven't been Blackwells, mm. Oxford. 
and in the shadow of the Bodleian Library in the Sheldonian Theatre, mm. all of that wonderful, wonderful bookshop. And he, he successfully emailed that um, what was going on. So the clues were Dickens, and then Austin, and then uh, Voltaire, and Ishiguro. And he successfully deduced that I was spelling Da Vinci. Oh, how did I not I get that? Da Vinci from the names of writers. Oh. He, the only one, he was the only one to tumble to that. I'm so sad I didn't get that. Fair enough. I was so next time we do next time we do an episode, there'll be at the beginning of a new a new and very different kind of cryptic clue uh, set and another prize in the offing. So we, we reboot and uh, it's all to play for again. It was very cryptic crossword, wasn't it? I just my my brain was going. I was looking for links between the actual authors. <laughs> Darn it! You so tricked me. Quite excited to email in and say. Are they all writers? I mean, yeah, they are all writers, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Yeah, I managed that far. I got as far as that. Yeah. That was about it. Oh, Dylan G, congratulations. Well done. You've got a better brain than me, clearly. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so we better round off with, you know, thank, thank you to ourselves for, you know, for doing this and producing it, and hopefully it'll sound okay. <laughs> but yeah. thank you for Tom and the production team for uh, yeah, not not minding when I emailed you the previous podcast and hopefully not minding uh, this time either. Um, and thank you guys for listening and for all your comments. We're starting to get some lovely emails and, and, and Google Classroom messages and questions. And please do, uh, as Sir said before, if you want to come on as a panellist, if you want to come as a guest, uh, if you want to suggest a topic that you think other people or ourselves should explore, please, please do. You know, we want this to be an interactive experience. We don't want to be speaking into the void because that's, you know... <laughs> No, because it might start speaking back to us. Oh my gosh. Yep, yeah, there you go. There's your novel idea right there, sir. There we go. I've solved that one. Apart from your vaccine novel that you've got to write as well, or screenplay, whatever you fancy. Um, you're busy. Yeah, I need you, you know, keep these, keep these, because you haven't got anything to do, you know, CAGs and TAGs and whatever other acronyms that you can come up with. And of course, please, please, please follow us um, on Twitter at JHGS English and at JHGS HW. Is there a science yeah, one? Yeah, there's a science one too. We have to on this episode tell people yeah. to follow JHGS Science. There we go. Absolutely. They, they're very good at visuals, actually. I'm quite impressed. They've incredible experiments that they've uh, put pictures up of um, that made me quite envious and made me want to be in the labs with them perhaps they'll invite us one day perhaps we can do a swap anyway i'm thinking aloud which is always a dangerous thing um and then yeah subscribe to us on youtube my under my name which is jenny with an i summers follow us on spotify listen to us on apple podcasts we're everywhere anywhere that you can think of that there's a podcast we're there so yeah you know join us on the journey to use a, a lovely overused metaphor um and yeah and keep listening and uh, give us suggestions for anything for the future so it remains just to say goodbye and thank you very much. Yes, bye. Take care. See you soon. Listen again. Listen again. Keep listening. Yeah, just re-listen. Listen. Get our viewing figures and listening figures up. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>